Well, welcome to Genesis. We're glad you guys are here tonight. How are we feeling? Good? All right. Well, hey, welcome to uh, the final night of Love and Glory, the series. Uh, this series is based upon a book that I've written, which comes out tomorrow, uh, which is really exciting. Uh, and so uh, tonight I'm excited to, to conclude this series, wrap up this series, and it has been amazing so far. Uh, and so really quick, the, the, the two reasons why I stand up here confident in what's taking place tonight. Uh, the first one is that Love and Glory is a product of the experiences that I've had here at Genesis, that if it were not for the people of Genesis, Genesis, this book would not have been possible. So thank you guys for that. I believe that it's, it caters to young adults so well. And so if it were not for my experience working with you guys and being a young adult myself, this would not have been possible. So again, thank you for that. The second reason is that even though I'm preaching out of a book that uh, is written by a man tonight, it will be no less rooted in scripture than it would be otherwise. So with that said, I'm ready to rock and roll. Let me tell you a story. So in uh, November of 2016, which is a, a year and a half ago now-ish, um, my wife and I, we took a trip to San Francisco, California, and it was our first time going to California for both of us. And so we were really excited to go. And so uh, this particular trip was a work-related trip for, for Emily. And so she spent most of the time in training. And so during the day, I was kind of left to kind of just do my own thing. And so uh, with plenty to do in San Francisco, I knew that this wouldn't be hard to do. And so I, I uh, went to a few really cool coffee shops. I hiked to see some uh, views of the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, I toured the uh, Giants baseball stadium, which is called AT&T Park. Uh, it was a really awesome trip. And then when she would get off work or get out of training, we would then go to get dinner and walk around the city. And it was a blast. But I think the most San Franciscan thing that I did while there was take a tour of Alcatraz Island. And so you guys probably know what Alcatraz is or was. Uh, you probably heard of it. It was an infamous prison, right? It was an infamous prison located on its own island about a mile and a half off the shore of San Francisco. And so this, this place was set aside for the worst criminals in society. So they kept it for the worst criminals in society. And because of the cold temperature of the uh, San Francisco Bay and the strong currents of the bay, it was considered impossible to escape from. That even if you were lucky enough to get past the guards, the mile and a half swim in the cold water would often prove to be too much. And so it was risky business, right? So it was uh, set aside for these, these terrible criminals. It was impossible to escape from. But interestingly enough, uh, a lot of people actually still gave escaping a chance. And it was actually said that uh, the, the guards at, at one particular time wouldn't even allow the prisoners to take cold showers because they didn't want them to get acclimated to cold water, which is pretty crazy. So Interestingly enough, we still had some guys to try to escape. And uh, in fact, there were 36 prisoners that tried to escape and 31 of them are accounted for or found. And so that leaves five prisoners, right? That nobody really knows what happened to them. Uh, two of them are presumed dead. The other three, however, it's a really interesting story what, what they did. So they actually fashioned some paper mache heads and got hair from the prison barbershop and put them in their beds. So when the guards walked by, it looked like people were sleeping in the bed. And then they dug out of the prison and then they got to the water and they actually used some prison issued rain jackets to make a raft to get into the water. And so they got out and then eventually they found the raft, but the people never were found and they are missing still to this day, which is really interesting. And so 
in the days of Alcatraz, the, the now, well, nowadays, nowadays, really the, the approach to handling really bad criminals is that we try to take them and like rehabilitate them and then put them back into society where back then in the days of Alcatraz, what they did, their approach was they're like, okay, we're going to take this really bad person, this really bad criminal, and we're going to remove them completely from society forever. And that's, so that's how they handled criminals back then. And so to do that, the government would relocate these people to this island prison. And so Alcatraz was an island of exile. And so tonight, I want to talk about where a physical and spiritual exile took place. And it was an exile that removed mankind from perfect communion with God and then ushered in the need for divine intervention. And so we're going to start uh, with a story that you probably all know, but my hope is to have you leave tonight thinking about it maybe a little bit differently. So everybody take a deep breath. Okay, so in order to set the stage for tonight, we need to go back and return to where the world was first created and discuss the account of creation. And so we know this, uh, we probably know this story pretty well, right? In Genesis 1, we see that over the course of five days, God creates the entire world, everything we've known or seen. And then on day six, uh, God follows by creating land animals. And then he follows that by creating what would be the final, most important creation, mankind. And so surrounded by the the scenery of the newly created earth, God reaches down and uses his hands to create mankind, which is interesting to think about when he created everything else by speaking, by a spoken word, he reaches down and uses his hands to create man. And then to give the, uh, the finishing touch, God breathes life into the lungs of man and he names him Adam. And so from the the lowly dirt of the earth, something beautiful had appeared. And so I believe it says a lot about the nature of God that when we see that he used dirt to make his most prized creation. And so he uses what may seem worthless and he gives it worth. He gives it value. He he takes what may seem useless and he gives it a, a, a use. And so we are nothing but dust made beautiful by the hands of an almighty creator. And so at this point, we get to Genesis 2, and Adam is given dominion over the planet. And God plants for him a garden, which was called the Garden of Eden. And so he's living in the Garden of Eden, and this was a place where perfect communion with God would take place. And so in this garden, you know, we know the story, right? There's one tree that you can't eat from, the forbidden tree, right? You can't eat. That's the one rule. You can't eat from this tree. And that, of course, was subject to a more broad rule, obey God. Just obey God, do what he says. And so don't eat from that one tree. That's your one rule. And after a while, God decides that it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so he puts Adam into a deep sleep and he takes a rib out of his rib cage and with it creates woman. And God names her Eve. And so the two of them then live in pure communion with God. They talked with God, they walked with God and they experienced God together. So they had an untainted relationship with God, one that was not marked by sin or unrighteousness or by a broken world. It existed on a physical and spiritual level. It was perfect. But as we know, unfortunately, something went wrong. In Genesis chapter three, we see that the the tempting serpent uh, persuades Eve to draw near to the forbidden tree. And he tells her that what God had told her about the tree was not true. 
He said, yeah, yeah, I know what God said, but listen, he just, he just knows that if you eat from this tree, you'll become like him. You'll be all knowing and all wise. You'll be on the same level as him. Doesn't that sound great? And so she is persuaded. She believes that he was telling the truth. And in a moment that would change everything, she takes a bite of the fruit of the tree. And then she hands it to Adam, who then also takes a bite. And this was the moment that sin entered our world. And their eyes get open and they realize that they're naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together to, to cover themselves. And then they heard footsteps. They heard God coming for them. And so they hid and God starts asking, where are you? Adam and Eve, where did you go? And eventually they come out from hiding and they explain the situation. And Eve says, well, the serpent deceived me. The serpent deceived me. And so God cursed the serpent. He curses the serpent and then he details the consequences for Adam and Eve. He says, Adam, listen, you're now gonna work for your bread by the sweat of your brow and from the, the dust you were taken to dust you shall return. And Eve, you're gonna ha start having pain in childbearing. So he details all these, these consequences and then he proceeds to remove them from the Garden of Eden. And so the perfect communion that existed between man and God was now over. And the time spent in Eden is the only time in earthly history where there was both physical and spiritual communion with God. It was the only time in history where there was both physical and spiritual communion with God. The Garden of Eden was a literal representation of an unblemished relationship with God. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, God physically banished them, physically removed them from the garden, but this represented the spiritual exile as well. And so mankind was now physically and spiritually exiled and disconnected from God due to sin. And so a separation had occurred and sacrifices became necessary. God's righteous wrath had been kindled. Unholy before a holy God, mankind had been uh, exiled from a relationship with him. The good news is that once this exile took place, the promise of a answer was introduced. God knew mankind was going to fall before they ever did, before we ever did. And so the, the promise of a solution was there even before creation. And so before creation, God had a plan. He had a solution. And it was a solution that would mend the brokenness of this exile. And so for thousands of years, the people of God awaited a Messiah. They awaited a savior to come fix everything. And the Old Testament is full of numerous prophecies that tell of his coming. And at the beginning of those years, we see something get put into place called the old covenant of the law. So we see the old covenant of the law get put into place and this law would serve as a mirror for, them, for people to see and then realize how sinful they in fact were. I don't know if you've ever read the uh, 10 commandments. I don't know about you, but I'm 0 for 10. I'm a sinner. I'm batting zero. I'm 0 for 10. I'm exiled from God. I'm a sinner. We all are. That's the truth. But we know that God is good. And he leaves nothing undone. And so thankfully, after those thousands of years, we see the solution make an appearance in a way that nobody expected. And that solution came to earth to mend the spiritual exile that we saw take place in Eden. And so that solution came in the form of a baby named Jesus, born of a virgin 
inside a modest stable. And that baby would grow up to change the world forever. And around the time he was 30 years old, he began his ministry. And that ministry would last three years. And during the course of those three years, we see a very intriguing overlap into uh, what was uh, between what was old and then over into what was new. And so you see this tension over the life of Jesus continue to, to rise between Jesus and the religious leaders of the time. Think about where these religious leaders were coming from. They had spent thousands of years, them and their ancestors and the generations before them, they had spent thousands of years doing things the same old way, doing the same old sacrifices, doing the same old rituals. And then all of a sudden, here comes something new. And so they weren't too happy about it. And so over the course of those three years, you see those things start to collide. You see those things start to overlap and you see some tension start to rise. They were stuck on the old and Jesus was there to bring the new. And so the the religious leaders were focused on the action of sin. Jesus came to get to the root of the sin. And eventually the religious leaders had had enough and they paid off one of Jesus's disciples to turn him in. Jesus was arrested, taken to trial, sentenced to death, whipped and then led out to a cross where he would die a horrific death and be the perfect sacrifice for us. And then thankfully on that third day, he resurrected back to life to defeat death, hell and the grave. And Jesus had fulfilled the old covenant of the law and then ushered in the new covenant of grace. And he died and rose again to to cure the problem of the heart and to set things right between creator and creation. And for that, we should be forever grateful because he provided mankind access to God once again. Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, escorted us back into a spiritual Eden. Does that make sense? He provided us access to God just like Adam and Eve had in Eden in the spiritual side. And so, uh, as we said at the beginning, God can take what is seemingly nothing and make it into something. He took the dust of the earth to create his most prized creation. And so just as he did that, he can also take the dust that is our life and weave it into a story of redemption. And so just as he reached down to form Adam from the ground, he also came down to earth to set us free from sin and all unrighteousness. And so there is hope in seeing in your life what happens when God touches the brokenness. There is hope in seeing what happens when God touches the dust of your life. And so for us in here tonight, we are nothing but dust made beautiful, but now covered in the righteousness of Christ. And it's all because of the cross and the resurrection. And so we see in scripture that, that Jesus will make two appearances on the earth, two appearances on the earth. The first appearance is the one we've talked about, right? The one where he's gonna come born of a virgin, live a perfect life, die a death that we deserved and then resurrect again. That was his first coming. His first coming redeemed the spiritual half of the exile. He redeemed the spiritual half of the exile. And so again, escorted by Jesus, we made a spiritual return to the figurative Eden. And that is something to celebrate and be grateful for, that we can now have a spiritual relationship with God like Adam and Eve had. That is good news, like we said. But unfortunately, the world we live in is still broken. The physical half of the exile still exists for us. We know this. We know the world that we live in, the things that we see, the tragedies that take place, the loss that we incur, the abuse that we, that we uh, experience, the, the failure we experience, the, the turmoil and the trouble 
We cannot experience God tangibly and physically like Adam and Eve did. And with that, that brings us to await two things. It brings us to await first the chance that we get to be in the fullness of the presence of God one day when we pass away. Second, we get to look ahead to the day when Jesus returns again for his second appearance, when he destroys the evil forces of this world, when he wipes away every tear and every pain and every, every time of mourning and he takes away death. Jesus came first to be the sacrifice and then he'll return again to be the warrior. So for us right here and now, we can rejoice the fact that we get to experience an internal Eden and then await the day we get to experience an external one. And so right here, we just got the entire story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So now that we see this, what does that mean for our life? What does that mean for our life? Well, now we know that God is the source of our life originally. He created us, but then we messed that up with sin. But then God came in and fixed it gave us new life through the cross. And so we have personal access to a God that not only created us, but sustains us and died for us and forgives us and desires us and then gives us eternal life. And so would we not then live this gift of a life for his glory? We go through life still living like the exile still exists for us. Yes, we are absolutely still in a broken world. We know that. We see the things, we know the things that we see. But so often we, we still live like we are spiritually exiled. And we are spiritually exiled no longer. Jesus, the blood of Jesus was enough to provide us access to God like Adam and Eve had spiritually. And so, so often we still live like we're still spiritually exiled. And we have been bought with a price. And so I believe that it's due time that we started living like it. We've been given one life to make a mark on this world and we're only gonna do it when we live our life through the filter of God's glory. And this life, this life is all that we have. And so we should make it count. We should make the most of it. And it's a powerful thing to commit your lifetime to God. Not just your Tuesday nights or your Sunday mornings, but your life. And we should aim to live our days with one mission in mind, make Jesus famous. A perfect example of a life lived for the glory of God is the life of the Apostle Paul. In his, in his second letter to Timothy, he writes a couple sentences that encompass what I believe to be uh, a, an incredible description and an incredible moment where you see that he has lived his life for the sake of Christ. And we see Paul here in this, in, in this letter as an old man. He's an old man that's experienced more than most in their life. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's been persecuted. He's lived a life of struggle for the name of Christ. And then he writes this in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. This will be on the screen. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Remember, like I said, he's an old guy at this point. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And these words are tiresome. You can almost hear the exhaustion in his tone, but they are equally expectant 
and hopeful and inspiring. And that Paul, like I said, he had lived a lifetime of persecution and trouble, but yet he lived a life that, that completed its given responsibility. And so he says he has fought the good fight. He's finished the race and kept the faith. And so he was keeping the faith even when it didn't make sense that he was going down swinging. He, he, he was determined to not fade at the finish because he knew his eternal reward was waiting on the other side. And you and I need this same perseverance in our life. Over the course of our life, we, you know, things are gonna get hard. Things are gonna get difficult and tough. We face hard circumstances Things also get tempting. We want to define ourselves with what this world says. We want to define ourselves with culture and social media and personal brand like we talked about in week one. We want to define ourselves with what this world says. But in our life, it is dire that we take our eyes off the earthly prize and set them heavenward. All the while holding fast to the reward we have waiting for us in Christ. So that when we come to the end of our life, we can say with confidence we have fought the good fight, finished the race, and kept the faith. It's not easy. It's not a cakewalk. It's not a Sunday stroll. But it's worth it. Christ is worth it. So for me, it's important that I ask myself this question. What do I want to be remembered for? Do I want to be remembered as just a communicator or just a Red Sox fan? or just that I really love chocolate. Do I want people half listening at my funeral because the eulogy is boring to hear? Will my life be so consumed with self that I leave no mark on anyone? Let me ask you the same question. What do you want to be remembered for? Will you, will you spend your life pursuing your glory or God's? What legacy are you going to leave? What are you going to stand for? And the beauty of it is we make our way out of this world one day. As we make our way out of this world, we are privileged to enter into a new one. And as people begin to see our legacy on earth, we start to lay our eyes on the reward of Christ and our reward in heaven. And so when we are united with our Savior, we experience the final redemption of the exile. We get to experience God in the fullness of his presence, spiritually and physically. And we get to reap the reward of what Christ died for, and that is to be with him. And in that moment, we want him to speak to us those magnificent, long for words, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know about you, but those words are worth more to me than any tombstone that's gonna crack over time. We need to leave a legacy on earth that says we kept our eyes on the reward in heaven. Because a lifetime lived for eternity is a lifetime lived to its fullest. And so I encourage you to make the choice now, today, to live your lifetime for the glory of God. I want to invite the, the band to come back up. That starts, don't be distracted. Don't miss this. This may be one of the most important things I've ever said in a message. We good? I encourage you to make the decision now to live your lifetime for the glory of God. I stand up here and ask you and say that question, what do I want to be remembered for? This is the last thing I ever say to you. This is what I would want it to be. Make the decision now. 
to live your lifetime for the glory of God. That starts with your decisions today. It follows with your faithfulness with tomorrow. And that leads into a legacy that will last far after you are gone and far after you are celebrating in heaven with the God who died for you. And with this in mind, you can't help but thank God for the life he's given you. We should be passionate about living it. I can't wait to to one day be this old man praying to the same God that I prayed to as a young man. I I, I can't wait to sit around at my dining room table and see my gray haired wife reading the Bible. I can't wait. I can't wait to see my first child give his or her life to Christ. I can't wait to see those moments. Why? Because I don't have to fear him changing. I don't have to be overwhelmed by the clock ticking or trying to make the most of of my life for me. No, I wanna make the most of my life for God, for Jesus. I can't wait to see the faithfulness of God over a lifetime. I wanna leave a legacy on earth that says I kept my eyes on the reward in heaven. That's what I lived for. I lived for heaven, not for Mike. I don't have to fear him changing. I know that because he's been in every up and down season of my life. When I understand him, when I walk through seasons where I, I, I feel like I'm praying to the ceiling, he was there. He was in there in every, every pit and every prison of my life and he's been there in every palace and every payoff. He was there in everything. And so I can trust him with my life. I can't wait to live it. I'm passionate about living it because I know I've been bought with a price. And I want to live my life through the filter of the glory of God. Because a lifetime lived for eternity, a lifetime lived for heaven, is a lifetime lived to its fullest. And I hope you can do the same. Because God didn't give us earthly immortality, but he did give us enough time to accomplish what he has set us forth to do. And I encourage you to take hope in that. And we can know that at the end of our life, we've played our part, we've ran the race, we've fought the good fight, and we have kept the faith that we've completed our duty and we have been good and faithful servants to the God who died for us. The spiritual exile is over. We have been bought with a price. We've been escorted by Christ into a spiritual Eden once again. Now let's make the most of it. Amen? Let's stand up. We're gonna move into a time of worship. And tonight, the the beauty of what we're doing tonight, we talk about heaven. We talk about the one day we get to, to reap our reward in Christ and see what Christ died for. Worship is a taste of heaven. I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you've ever been in a time of worship and you've looked around and you've heard the voices and you've seen the hands raised, I hope you know that's a little, a little glimpse of what's to come. Tonight, we're gonna, we're gonna do a couple songs, one slow, one fast. You'll know both of them. And so tonight, when you sing, when you worship, I want you to know that when you are, when you are worshiping, this is a taste of heaven. This is a taste of what's to come. This is a taste of what Christ died for. This is a, this is a taste of the return of Jesus. This is a taste of heaven. I think some of you in here tonight are dying for that. That you're in situations that you don't understand, 
you're in situations that you wish God would show up in and you're in situations you, you feel like, like I said, like you're praying to the ceiling. God, where are you? Sometimes we don't understand what we're walking through. Sometimes we can't control the things that happen to us, but one thing we can control is how much we worship. So tonight as we sing, I encourage you to sing maybe you like you've never sang before. This is a taste of heaven. So the band's gonna go into the song. And I encourage you, don't miss out. Don't miss out.